Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Before we tape this episode, um, which was taped last week, uh, this was prior to the attack that happened at the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. service members, injuring another 18. Um, at least 140 were wounded, according to the Afghanistan's Ministry of Public Health. Um, I wanted to play a clip from President Biden speaking last week about the attack. I just wanted to give a heads up. This episode was taped prior to the attack that happened at the airport. Our thoughts, prayers uh, for all the victims and the lives lost in this senseless tragedy. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. Hey, everybody. Welcome in to another episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today from Reuters, Idris Ali is going to be joining us. He's a foreign policy correspondent covering the Pentagon and a lot of the situation that's been happening, obviously, in Afghanistan. So we're so excited that Idris was able to join us on the program today. He's on later on. Uh, first, I say hello to the one and only folks, the one and only Nick Zaveri. Nick, my friend, how are you, buddy? I'm good, man. Got a big milestone coming up. Our oldest starts first grade on Monday. This is a... Uh, wild times here going back into a school building thankfully with masks mandated so there we go yeah about to work from home with one less kid to have to deal with so <laughs> you know you know that's because obviously um i'm assuming during the pandemic she didn't go in last year 
She did so not go is, in at all. Right. So this is the first time you're actually going to have, you know, a kid going into a school. Wow. That's that's what how's that feeling as a parent? Well, first and foremost, the fact that masks are mandated is it's helpful for us. Um, it's it's good. I mean, it's it's important. I mean, she's been super excited. Um, you know, she's definitely in the right headspace to be in a classroom, meet new students, work directly with a teacher. I mean, again, her virtual experience last year for as challenging as it could be, especially for a kindergartner, she was fantastic. An amazing class, amazing teacher. Uh, but she's ready. And the environment is set up so that this is the one that feels most appropriate. And again, my as most people on the show now, my wife's a physician, and this is what she pays attention to. And this seems like the environment that is ideal. You know, every pediatric association will tell you in-class instruction, especially for children this age, is the is the optimal setting to do it in a way that keeps students safe, which in this case, because these are unvaccinated people, masks make sense. So all those things line up and right. yeah, now we're back to getting school supplies and picking out your book bag and you know, that's awesome clothes and it'll be awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and we have uh, obviously in the coming weeks, um, somebody coming on from the education space, we teased it in last episode, but somebody coming on to talk about the virtual learning environment, what schools are doing, you know, cause they're obviously some are doing in person, some are doing, you can opt out like Nick just mentioned. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. Um, the episode for today is something we really wanted to get into because the situation that's been happening in Afghanistan has been dominating a lot of uh, the news coverage and the media cycle. Uh, you see it everywhere from not only the big news outlets, the CNN, MSNBCs, and Fox, but you see the daily White House press briefings uh, from Jen Psaki, the press secretary there. You know, uh, the majority of the questions are related to Afghanistan, Americans that are being evacuated from there, uh, uh, Afghans that are being evacuated from there, either that have, you know, uh, American citizenship, dual citizenship, or they, they, they helped us during this war period coming over here. So We've heard so many clips from the Pentagon and John Kirby. We've heard so many clips from President Biden. Um, I, real quick, I wanted to play something from uh, President Biden's uh, message to the American people last week. As of this afternoon, we've helped evacuate 70,700 people just since August the 14th, 75,900 people since the end of July. Just in the past 12 hours, another 19 U.S. military flights 18 C-17s and one C-130 carrying approximately 6,400 evacuees and 31 coalition flights carrying 5,600 people have left Kabul just in the last 12 hours. So you heard President Biden there talking about how many people so far, uh, of course, as of this taping, folks, um, have been evacuated from the area. There's an August 31st deadline, which is tomorrow um, in terms of when when uh, the Taliban and the United States government have kind of uh, agreed upon a date for the U.S. troops to to head out of the area and the Kabul International Airport that they kind of are under control. So I'm so excited that Idris was able, Idris, excuse me, is able to come on the program today to really dive into more about the history of the region, why we were there in the first place, the differences between some of the groups that have been in the region, the Taliban, Al Qaeda, obviously, and we'll get a little bit into ISIS, uh, not so much that they were in the region, but we'll get into a little bit of the differentiators between those groups. But also, you know, there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking on this, right? You know, what could the Biden administration have done differently? What was it that the Trump administration did prior that put the Biden administration in, in kind of this situation? Because um, Trump wanted to leave, 
Biden wanted to leave. They both wanted to continue this plan. So um, and, and you're hearing it now from all the different outlets, podcasts that are out there. It's do- it's dominating a lot of the coverage. And we wanted to devote something uh, to it, but have somebody on that could really educate us. So so Idris is really going to help us out here. He's been across, you know, obviously CBS, uh, CBS News Network and a couple other outlets reporting on this. And he does a fantastic job at Reuters. Check out all his work at Reuters.com. Follow him on social media. Nick, um, last episode, we kind of talked a little bit about Afghanistan, gave it a tease, obviously, because how it fed into polling and would this carry over into the midterms for Democrats or Republicans alike. Um, I want to get your take a little bit more about the history that we're going to be talking with Idris about Um, the history of why we were there, the importance of, you know, this 20 year war in U.S. history eyes, you know, um, give me a little bit of your your takes and feelings and emotions as you've heard all these press clippings. You you you've watched a lot of this. You've been entrenched in this. Give me give me some of your takes on, on the situation in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's a it's a situation that we still can't make sense of. I mean, on the surface, we're talking about 20 years of being entrenched in a territory that upon us leaving or beginning the withdrawal within three weeks was taken back by the organization that we were trying to keep the country from. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the legacy that unfortunately we've had as a country about being involved in recently in foreign entanglements that don't seem to hold, make a whole lot of sense. Um, and I, I, I said this in our last episode that this does feel a little like our Vietnam, and that's not to be disrespectful to those who have served either in this conflict or in the pre or in the Vietnam War. But there is something strange that happens here when we have devoted so much time, energy, and resources, and and just in people to to this effort. And in the end, it it feels all for naught. And I mean, I'd be very curious to hear from someone who feels like there were gains made because to the average person 20 years later 20 years and three weeks later the taliban are back in 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 authority and so what was the point of all this um you know we talk about how little we understand of the territory and even before this this recent conflict you know dating back to the 1970s with the mujahid with the mujahideen um you know that were at the time you know fighting against russia yeah, you know, this is a territory that has a history of predominantly white countries trying to establish presence there. You know, going back to Great Britain, and history is telling us that every time we've seen that, eventually these predominantly white nations withdraw and things return back to the way they seem to be. And again, I think this is the importance of having injuries on, just to hear. A, did my <laughs> summary right there oversimplify or am I kind of onto something here? But secondly, the it's important that we understand as voters and as citizens to make sense of all this and have the conversation with ourselves and, and our politicians. Is this the route to go? You know, there was a there was at least one member of Congress, and I forget her name now, who would vote who famously voted against this against against sending troops to Afghanistan. Yeah, she was now, she was from California. Yeah. Yep, the representative. Yeah, and at the time she was demonized for it, and now she doesn't even want to be lauded for it. You know, she just sees this as being unfortunate from the beginning, and that's probably what she was thinking at the start of this. As what is the point of this? Um, you know, I, not ironically, but we are coming up on a couple of weeks removed from the anniversary of the terrorist attack on September 11th, and obviously the war in Afghanistan was part of our response as a country to you know to us being attacked 
But 20 years later, while Osama bin Laden is thankfully in the ground now, courtesy of U.S. forces, what we see you know, with our time in Afghanistan doesn't seem to be producing a lot of any, really any benefit aside from you know, profitability to you know, just the military industrial complex and you know, call it whatever you want to. But um, beyond, yeah, beyond war profit, I'm not quite sure what has been gained there. Yeah, Actually, you know what? Let me let me backtrack that um, because it is an over, oversimplification in the sense that if you were someone living in Afghanistan for the past 20 years, I think, and I'm very curious to hear injuries or on anyone who's been reporting on the say, have times been better? You know, have the presence of the United States and other nations in that area reduced the presence of the Taliban or the authority of the Taliban in a way that to have lived in Afghanistan for the past 20 years felt like you live in the time of peace. And if that is the case, then I may be wrong in my assessment. But honestly, to see, especially in the past three weeks, uh, the the organ, the Taliban, which is running roughshod um, through the Afghanistan, um, you know, the, the region. Yeah. Yeah. Representative Barbara Lee was her name uh, from California, Oakland Democrat. She voted against the war in Afghanistan. I remember seeing a segment, uh, I believe on CNN, that she was on talking about her vote. And similar to what you just said, she was very like, hey, you know, I, I don't want to take credit for this. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I want to get into from Idris's article was about um, there's two points there. Um, at the end, he kind of summarizes it with two overall questions, right? Like, was this worth it? Right. And there's some people within the article that he asked and some say yes, some say no. And then the other one is and you're hearing it a lot specifically from Republicans um, and some Democrats as well, too. And it's very much the why uh, um, it didn't have to end like this, you know. And so, well, if it didn't have to end like this, how should it have ended? Like I'm hearing a lot of finger pointing, but nobody with a solution months prior, because, again, Trump announced, if he had won, that he was withdrawing troops May 1st. Biden announced, in conjunction, it's literally, there's, there's press clippings uh, uh, that Biden was like, the only thing I liked about Trump was that he said, no more new wars, I want to get out of Afghanistan. And he said, 9-11 anniversary is when we're going to be leaving. So both had, a, both ha- had already had dates announced as to when they were going to do troop withdrawal. The question is, everyone now is examining the Biden administration's plan here because they're seeing the images out of Kabul, right? There's reporters on the ground. We've seen Clarissa Ward from CNN, Trey Yanks from Fox News, all reporting on the ground in terms of this, you know, withdrawal effort. And, you know, you're seeing babies being handed to military troops in the U.S. You've heard a couple, three different instances of uh, on these flights out of Afghanistan, people giving birth. We've heard about, obviously, there's been, you know, obviously the Taliban and their history with women in that region. There's been a lot of women in the region that are, that are scared for their lives, you know. Um, a lot of female journalists, I know the Taliban spokesperson sat down with one recently to talk about that this is a different regime, a different Taliban. Is it? It's back to your point, right? We 20 years, are there people there that legitimately feel like, you know, the, my life is improved from this or is it all was it all worth it? Is it all for not? So uh, after the break, Idris is going to come on and really shed some light as to the totality of this. We're going to go into the history of it after the break. Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by HelloFresh. I, I love HelloFresh, by the way, um, because if you, Nick, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? Hell yeah. 
we'll expand on that because hell yeah, I don't know what that means. Like, <laughs> well, you expand. asked a, you asked a close question. <laughs> like, what'd you eat? What'd you eat for dinner today? Well, today today was pizza day, man. We just we actually See. just you know made some pizza around here. But yeah, no, we followed this rut all time. I've got two little ones, so you got to account for them. My mother in law right. lives with us, and her tastes are sometimes a little different than Laura and I. So you got to think about things that are quick, things ready to go. And yeah. man, that's where HelloFresh comes in. I mean, that sounds like a dinner rut. Uh, you just I mean, look with HelloFresh, you're gonna get fresh, pre measured ingredients. With mouth-watering, seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. My wife and I tried HelloFresh up here in New York. We love it. Um, skip all those trips to the grocery store because in New York, you know, you got small refrigerators. You got small cabinet space. I can't go to the grocery store and keep all this stuff. So I got to rely on HelloFresh um, to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Nick, you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, which gives you time to be late to hop onto this podcast and record with me like you always are. That's right. That's right. I'm calling you out in this. You this my man airing out the laundry. See, and and what Mike doesn't know though is that Laura and I have gone through every meal service. Okay. We've done we've done them all. And HelloFresh has been by far our favorite one because to Mike's point, that prep time is real. 30 minutes, you're gonna get some quality stuff on the table for your family. It's true. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All the recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Go to the link right now in our show notes, whatever audio podcast platform you listen to us on, you're going to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. That's amazing. That? Uh, 80, let me read it again. Uh, $80 off. 80 bucks. Free shipping on HelloFresh. Man, it's like a PS5 game plus $10. <laughs> I mean, only you know that math. I don't, I literally don't know that math, folks. If you can, if you can add up whatever PS4 games equate to $80. PS5, my man wants to pay attention. Oh, exactly. PS5. <laughs> that's how, that's how bad I don't know it. HelloFresh, you can clip all that out, HelloFresh. Um, $80 off, including free shipping. Head to the audio, audio podcast platform. Show notes right there. Click on the link. HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. All right, like we teased at the top, uh, he's a fantastic foreign policy correspondent over at Reuters. Check out all his work at Reuters.com. That is Idris Ali. Idris, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Yeah, of course. Glad to be here. So listen, we wanted to have you on. Obviously, uh, I mentioned to you when you and I were exchanging some messages back and forth about talking about the situation overall in Afghanistan, not only a historical perspective, but also going into some other involvements in the region, um, the difference between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Um, but at a high level right now, the 30,000 foot view as of this moment, um, can you explain to our audience how the Taliban were able to take over 12 cities in Afghanistan so fast and really leave the U.S. kind of scrambling to get people out. Explain to us the totality of the situation over these last three weeks. Is that just an oversimplification or, is, or give us a little bit more context if you could? Yeah, I mean, just for background sake, basically for the past 20 years, the United States and, and you know a bunch of allies have essentially been training the Afghan military, building up the Afghan government with the hopes that one day, you know, they could leave and that, you know, this country could develop, you know, essentially in their own image. That was the hope. Um, and over the, you know, essentially four presidents, each one has tried to get out um, from Afghanistan, um, but hasn't been able to. And things were really set in motion by Trump, uh, President Donald, former President Donald Trump last year. 
um, when he signed a PC with the Taliban, which essentially set the deadline for the withdrawal on May 1st. Obviously, President Biden won the election, um, you know, in 20, what was it, 2020? Um, and, you know, es essentially agreed to the same terms, but just moved it forward to September. And he made the announcement in April, and we basically started hearing, you know, look, yes, we're going to withdraw in September. That was the plan back then. But don't worry, because the Afghan government, you know, may struggle, but we're pretty confident that they can hold off the Taliban forces. Um, you know, that we heard General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, say, you know, just a couple of months ago that he believed that Al-Qaeda, for example, wouldn't be a threat for at least two years to the U.S. homeland. So basically, there was some expectation that the Taliban would make some gains, gain a couple of cities here and there. Um, but that the Afghan government would be pretty cohesive, not cohesive maybe, but coherent and, and you know, be able to stand up. Um, what happened was basically now 10 days ago, almost to the day, actually exactly to the day, we started seeing the Taliban taking over provincial capitals. So, you know, before this, they were able to take over district centers. There are about 400 district centers spread uh, around Afghanistan, um, but they're usually not very densely populated and they don't really have any strategic value. And we initially started seeing the Taliban take those over in large numbers, but no one was really panicked because again, a district center could literally be one police checkpoint from you know city A to city B with really no uh, population. Uh, but then 10 days ago, something turned and we started seeing the Taliban take over provincial capitals, which is really where people live, has high strategic value. And when that happened, it caused a lot of panic. And honestly, it kind of felt like, you know, a pack of cards or a house of cards where one fell. And, you know, within essentially eight days, seven days, the whole country had fallen to the Taliban. The question is, why, is, why did that happen? Um, and when we talk to sources, there are a couple of different reasons. First reason is, um, you know, uh, mor morale. Um, so in a lot of cases, the Afghan security forces, you know, were trained, but the lower level uh, officials and soldiers were never really paid on time, didn't have the proper ammunition, clothing, food, stuff like that. So there was really low morale. So as the Taliban swept through them, the question became, you know, if you're a lower level official, would you risk your life for a government that's not paying you? And the answer very quickly became no. So that was the first reason. The second reason we saw was um, because the central government or the federal government uh, under President Ghani um, didn't really have any constituency in many of the cities. And it became a question of, well, why am I fighting for this person who probably is corrupt and doesn't really represent my views? And then third and the last reason is we believe that in many cases deals were cut um, by the provinces themselves to say, look, we're probably going to be overrun. Um, and rather than losing, you know, tens of thousands of people, civilians in many cases, it's probably better for us to give up, um, agree with the Taliban, and, you know, maybe be able to, you know, basically leave with our lives in hand. So when you combine those three, we saw this really swift 11, 12-day assault by the Taliban, where they've essentially taken over the whole country, except one province, um, without, you know, mass casualties. Andres, when you first came on, you mentioned, you know, part of your work is reporting, you know, in terms from the Pentagon. Um, was there a sense when 
Trump had first made this declaration and then Biden moving forward. Was there just rumblings within the Pentagon of holy bleep? It's about to happen. We have a lot to get ready for, or we are in no position to think about this. But were there rumblings, obviously not dissension, but just concerns that, in your view, may not have been given as much weight by either administration in the plans to withdraw troops? Yeah, so I will say, the, you know, the military has for the past 20 years been overly optimistic about Afghanistan and their uh, capabilities to turn the country and to make it a success. So, you know, we've, we've heard from commander after commander saying, hey, look, if we have one more year, two more years, we can really turn this around. Obviously, none of that is, you know, turned out to be true. And so there was coming into President Trump and then President Biden, a lot of fatigue with the military and the views they held because they had failed um, on a lot of things in Afghanistan over the past two decades. Um, when the president and President Trump made his decision and his announcement that, look, we're going to cut a peace deal, the military was concerned because for them, it meant essentially, you know, having to withdraw troops in the military never likes giving up troops or bases. Um, but there was some level of hope that look, we have a year um, for this to work. And, you know, if it doesn't work, we won't leave. So there was a bit of concern, but I think there was some optimism and hope that maybe the withdrawal wouldn't happen if the Taliban didn't live up to the conditions that were set for them, which included, you know, reduction in violence, negotiations. Um, when President Biden made his announcement in April, he was recommend, military recommended that he does not go down to zero troops, he leaves some level of footprint. So again, it was another instance of a president or a military telling the president, hey, we should leave some troops because we think it could get quite bad. So yeah, I mean, I, to answer your basic question, where's their concern? Yes. Um, part of it is because the military never likes giving up bases and troops in countries, but part of it was if this happens in a precipitous manner, which it, you know I think we can see now it did, um, the Taliban could make big gains and uh, it could lead, you know, in the future to it becoming another safe haven for extremism. Um, and I think that's the biggest concern right now. Was this, is this also part of a larger narrative of us and us as Americans in this case, never truly understanding the territory? Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think uh, part of the reason is, um, I mean, you know, you have to go back to the nineties, right? Uh, the United States was obviously involved when the Soviets were there. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, you know, the focus then was obviously getting the Soviets out, embarrassing them. Um, and then the region was kind of abandoned by the United States, right, for the better part of a decade and a half until 9-11. And, you know, for anyone who kind of understood history or the region, you would know that, you know, it's just not a good idea to do that. Um, and then fast forward to 2020, we're at a situation again where, you know, it, the United States never seemed to learn from history, and really they never understood the region. I mean, I remember talking to someone, um, and then they, you know they were mentioning 2001, where the United States was flying you know spy planes over the country of Afghanistan constantly. They were sucking up all the signals intelligence, but they only had one Dari and one Pashto speaker, so they had all this intelligence, but they didn't have anyone to translate it. And even less people to understand it and i think that's a you know obviously that was early on but it really never changed because in many cases many of the troops who came to afghanistan who rotated in and out 
were there for six months or nine months, and that's not enough time to understand a country as complex as Afghanistan. Um, and then you obviously have policymakers in Washington um, who are, you know, obviously well-educated and, you know, well-read and everything, um, but have political reasons. And, you know, many of their constituents don't understand, you know, that this is like, you know, a very complicated part of the world. It's corrupt, can be corrupt. Um, you know, it, it just takes time. And I think that's something that no one ever really took the time to, to understand, unfortunately. And that's kind of the goal of why we started this show from an inf informative and educational standpoint. Um, I want to ask you a present day question because we're seeing a lot. You wrote about this in your article that we're going to get to uh, a little bit later on about was it worth it? But the Biden administration has been getting criticized a lot for uh, not only messaging, but not being unified. You know, we've seen Kirby at the Pentagon saying some different things that the president didn't take with him into his presser. And then Jen Psaki's getting asked these different questions from the White House press corps. So um, what could the Biden administration have done better in terms of being unified in messaging? Because, you know, they announced that they wanted to be out by 9-11. Biden ran on similar to what Trump did in terms of no more new wars and getting out of the region. But it just looks like they botched something here. And now specifically the messaging part of it, they're getting hammered on. So what could the Biden administration have done differently from the messaging standpoint of all, all being on the same page? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's very tough to message a crisis. And that's what they found themselves in. And it was a it, it is a pretty bad crisis. I mean, they didn't expect it. No one expected it, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, I'll say that to begin with is it's never easy to message in a crisis. Secondly, um, a lot of the individuals um, at the White House currently were in the Obama administration. And the Obama administration was notorious for uh, being a White House that tried to control the messaging over State Department, over the Pentagon, and tried to be unified. And counterintuitively, when you sort of exercise so much control and micromanage that actually leads to those government agencies not rebelling, but, um, you know, having their own opinions and, you know, being frustrated. And actually that ends up leading to more, you know, ununified messaging. So this this desire to be unified weirdly actually led to a lack of unification. And, you know, the third thing I'll say is um, the White House obviously is, you know, basically a political, um, you know, agency, not even agency, right? it's, it, it's a political um, part of the government. The Pentagon and State Department, obviously, especially the Pentagon, is supposed to be nonpartisan and just, you know, apolitical. And so their job, they see it, is to essentially give facts and figures, whereas the White House, I think, sees their job as, you know, running the country. Um, and at times that means being political. And so we run on this, this this essential question of like, you know, for the Pentagon, either this thing happened or didn't happen. And for the White House, it becomes a question of like, well, this thing may have happened or may not have happened, but here's what you should be focusing on. And so inherently there's this contradiction and tension. And so we're seeing that basically play out. And I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, okay, uh, well, one example that's come up is President Biden in his speech, um, not today, but the one that he gave over the weekend, um, said kind of bizarrely that Al-Qaeda didn't exist in Afghanistan anymore. Um, he kind of stumbled you know, upon it. No one asked him. He just kind of said it. The White House's reaction was for Jake Sullivan to come out on Monday and say, basically, well, what he meant to say was Al-Qaeda no longer presents a threat to the United States, right? So he kind of interpreted Biden's message 
and uh, you know tried to relay that. The Pentagon, John Kirby, came out very clearly. He said, no, Al-Qaeda exists in uh, Afghanistan. And so he was speaking on facts, whereas the White House was you know, trying to, I don't want to use the word spin, but basically try to explain something without criticizing the president. And so to your question of what could they be, what could they do to be more unified? I think, you know, these guys have morning meetings every day. They sync up, they, they have the talking points. Um, but it comes down to, you know, it's really hard to spin facts um, when you're at the Pentagon or the State Department. You know, uh, I'll give you another example. Today, um, or for the past couple of days, there's been a big question of how many American citizens have been um, evacuated. And over the weekend, we got figures of 2,500 Americans have been evacuated. But clearly, the message went out from the White House saying, hey, stop giving out numbers. And so for the past couple of days, we haven't been getting numbers. And Kirby at the Pentagon saying, it's, been a, it's a couple of thousand, and I can't give you more details. Um, so that's an example of everyone getting on the same page. Um, with that being said, obviously, President Biden has come out and said, you know, the number's 4,000. Um, and so now I think we'll hear more of that. But it, it's a case of, like, I think stumbling into a situation where they all just have to kind of figure out how to do it. And it's not easy when, you know, facts are, are all over the place. I'm glad you mentioned Al-Qaeda a moment ago. Idris, you know, for a literacy moment for a second, you know, when we think obviously the Taliban now is the ruling authority in Afghanistan, but you mentioned the organization of Al-Qaeda. For our listeners, you know, as we think of these two different entities, and obviously they're very different, but I go to you to ask, what is the difference between these two organizations? So it's interesting because, well, uh, you know, they are dissimilar and similar in the same same breath. So obviously this, you know, 9-11 was essentially carried out by Al-Qaeda, not by the Taliban, um, but the Taliban were in the crosshair because they were harboring Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, where the essentially the plotting of 9-11 was done. So, you know, they're intertwined in that way because, um, you know, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they essentially had to kick out the Taliban to get to Al-Qaeda. Um, and, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years, and this is, you know, very public, according to the UN reports that we've seen over the past couple of years, is both organizations still maintain a level of cooperation, um, and they have for the past couple of years, and there's a lot of concern about what that will mean um, going forward for the United States. You know, those are the similarities. What's dissimilar is kind of what the intention is for each organization. So for the Taliban, it is to essentially run um, Afghanistan, according to Islamic law, right? That they want to be a, a government, essentially. Um, Al-Qaeda is a bit different in that they share some of the same values, but they also want to attack the United States and Western interests, interests um, around the world. So the main difference is essentially what they want to do for Al-Qaeda. So for the Taliban, it's run Afghanistan. For Al-Qaeda, it's attack the United States. And so I think we see um, those, um, some of the main differences. And again, another difference is just the number of people in Al-Qaeda. You know, we're, in Al-Qaeda, we're talking maybe low thousands. The Taliban, we're talking 70 to 80,000 people. So it, it's just, a, you know, intention, size is different, um, but they do maintain some level of um, uh, cooperation. It appears that the Taliban's in the process of, for lack of a better phrase, 
rebranding itself. Uh, there's been story, there's been reporting now talking about um, a different treatment of women. Um, in your assessment from your reporting and everything you're understanding historically, should this attempt at rebranding be trusted with the Taliban back in power? Should we expect a different approach to authority or to governing from this, this organization in its current, in its current iteration? So I would say uh, what I've been hearing and what I personally believe is I don't think we can judge them until August 31st when all Western or all the Western troops are supposed to be out. And I think they will be out because right now there's a microscope on them, right? We have television crews, you know, journalists, governments, everyone just laser focus on them. So, you know, how they behave in the next week, I don't think is a, is an indication of how they intend to behave, you know, the future. So I think that's the first point. Um, have they changed? That's a good question. Obviously, time will tell. Um, one view is that they haven't in that this is what we saw um, when they took over in the 90s, which is, you know, they, they started off with a softer approach, uh, lighter approach. And then as time went on, the economy suffered. Um, you know, there was civil war. They really clamped down. And so I think, you know, we'll see how they've changed or haven't changed when things get really tough and, and you know, they will get tough pretty fast. Um, in another way, I think they have and have been forced to change by stuff like social media, right? So in the 90s, you know, seeing women not go to school or beheadings or, or just the, you know, um, very assertive, aggressive, oppressive um, rule that they had, you know, people saw it and people read it, but it wasn't in your face. With social media, everyone kind of has a phone. Um, and I think when you start seeing those um, images being broadcast, it's going to have an impact. And at the end of the day, the Taliban do crave international recognition. They need it to be funded and get investments. And so I think this sort of, you know, growth of social media will force the Taliban in some way, even if it's not, not um, uh, genuine, to be a bit different from when they were uh, in power in the 90s. Idris, one of the things that we're seeing here domestically, and it's playing out on, on media circles, specifically right-wing media, is now everything that's happening with the Afghan refugees that are coming in. You're hearing a lot of this from the Foxes and Newsmaxes of the world that are making these claims. Um, we shed a little bit of light for our audience about what's being misreported in some of this you know what's a piece of information that people are getting wrong about the process of bringing the SIVs over other refugees American citizens break that down for our audience if you could yeah so I mean you know there are different visa categories people come under right and and so when we're talking about the evacuation the administration said the priority is Americans um, to get out Americans and then you have subcategories within um, Afghans at risk. So the sort of most at risk are called SIV applicants, which is special immigrant visas, which is essentially if you worked for the US government over the past 20 years in Afghanistan, so whether you were an interpreter risking your life, um, it was primarily interpreters, actually, if, if you were essentially risking your life for the, for the US government in Afghanistan, like interpreters, you fall under this category known as the SIV, and you are a priority for the evacuation. And then a category below that is called P1, P2. So these are, you know, not people who work for the U.S. government, but who worked at human rights organizations or were journalists in Afghanistan, Afghans who were journalists. 
they come under that P1, P2 category. And so they're, you know, fast-tracked essentially, um, but they're not as high a, a, a target for the Taliban essentially. And so that's how the administration has broken down uh, the priority list. Now, what we're seeing is um, a lot of criticism, or not a lot, but it's, it's bubbling up slowly, um, mainly from the right wing, about um, how many... Uh, Afghans are going to be allowed into the country? Are they going to be vetted? You know, the usual um, points you would hear from people who are anti-immigrant. Um, a lot of it, obviously, is, is just plain false because um, in many cases, the people who are going through the security checks, security screenings are screened far more than any visa applicant um, coming to the United States from other countries. Um, in many cases, it takes three years to 10 years to get this SIV visa application through, which is obviously far more than is actually even legally allowed, but they just go through a rigorous test. And I will say for a lot of these people, um, they held some of the highest security clearances the U.S. government had when they were working for the U.S. government. So this idea that they would in any way be a threat to the United States, I think, is far, far overhyped. And I don't think it fully appreciates the fact that essentially they were working for the U.S. government um, in very sensitive roles, you know, either with special forces or CIA or, you know, whatever you, you kind of want to uh, look at. So there's obviously a, a lot of misunderstanding of that. Numbers um, kind of vary as well. So, you know, if you talk to a refugee resettlement group, they say 125,000 people is the number that should be evacuated. That number is probably closer to 60,000 um, that will realistically be potential and obviously a far uh, lower number will actually be evacuated um, when all is said and done. Um, and what's happening is um, a lot of these refugees are going to end up in the United States um, at military bases around the country. We have five bases now um, around the country, but a lot of them are also going to be resettled in third countries that we've reported. So, you know, Qatar is hosting a bunch of people. We've heard, you know, countries as far as Albania and Kosovo uh, will take in refugees. And so, you know, I know the number sounds pretty surprising, 125,000, but in reality, they're going to be spread out not only across the United States, but across the world, really. And so, um, you know, many of these people, if not all, are highly educated, highly skilled um, people who, you know, uh, are, are in a tough situation, not because of anything they did, just because, you know, um, the country's collapsed. And something tells me they're less likely to storm the Capitol building, you know, come yeah. July 6th of next year. Maybe. Um, yeah, yeah there, there's that. Um, in a recent piece you wrote, uh, the question about um, was it worth it, you know, was explored. Um, in your view, just for our audience, as you reflect on just your reporting research over the past, you know, as we're seeing this relationship with Afghanistan for the past 20 years, um, starting to come to an end or at least evolve to a new, to a new place. I'll ask you that question you posed. Was it worth it? Yeah. So, I mean, this, the story I did kind of looked at it from the uh, point of view of, a, of a, a service member, right? Was it worth it? And, the honest answer is there probably is no one answer. So if you're someone, so I mean, I'll look at it from different perspectives, right? So if you're a service member who served in Afghanistan um, and lost a, you know, a number of friends, 
um, which is for many service members, right? And then you look back and say, you know, the country I thought I was helping build up collapsed in 11 days. And, you know, in that process, I lost three of my best friends. Realistically, uh, the answer is probably no. And it's an unfortunate answer. But I think realistically, if you look back objectively, it probably was no. Um, but if that, you know, same service member, if you look at another side of the coin, which is, you know, yes, the Taliban has taken over in 11 days. But over the past 20 years, the, um, you know, the percentage of women going to school has gone up. I, I can't even remember, but it's like significantly tenfold, right? We're talking like 50% increase in, in education of girls. The mortality rate for children has gone way down. The lifespan of women, for example, has gone way up. So there have actually been improvements. And, you know, it, it almost depends on what side of the coin you look at. So if you're looking at just simply the top line, you know, where's the government, where are the forces? No. But if you kind of dig down on the details, I think you would say yes. But that yes would be with an asterisk because we don't know how it's going to evolve over the next 10 years, right? If, if, if all those gains go away, then that too would be a no. Idris, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you from that same article, there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking on this. Obviously, everybody on Twitter now is an expert on Afghanistan. Um, and you you posed two questions kind of in that article. The, was it worth it that Nick just asked you about? But the question I wanted to know was, what could have been done differently? Because we're seeing a lot of people uh, and it's playing out on, on, on the television media landscape. Um, giving their opinion as to this was rushed, this was hurried, this was this, this was that. But nobody, at least, you know, was really uh, vocalizing how we should uh, have an exit strategy for getting out of there. Because like I mentioned um, before you came on, the Trump administration had set a deadline, I believe it was either end of April or May 1st of 2021 to be out. The Biden administration said, no, by 9-11 we'll be out. So everybody knew we were leaving but I don't hear any solutions as to how this could have gone better for not only the Biden administration, but for, for the withdrawal of everybody that we have there in the region. So what are you hearing in your reporting of in terms of, well, you know, we missed it on this. We should have done this differently. So I'll give two answers to that. Uh, when you say what could have been done differently, the first thing that could have been done differently, which I've heard from so many officials is the U S should have never gone in as a nation builder, you know, it, it was able to take over Afghanistan very quickly, should have just stopped there, right? So that's like the broader what you've done. Um, the second one is the way the withdrawal was done. So, you know, when you're right, everyone knew the withdrawal was going to happen. Um, and the Pentagon was like kind of frustrated, but they were like, look, we've done this for 20 years. We're not winning. It is time. The problem was the way it was done. So, you know, everyone knew you're like august 31st is the end right we knew this for months and you know as the date was approaching a couple of months ago the pentagon very quietly set, told the state department the white house being like look we're gonna have to evacuate a lot of people afghans and you know uh, it's going to be an issue give us the authority to start flying out a few of them let us open up some bases for them that way when we're closer to the deadline we won't have concerns, mass hysteria at the airport. And the State Department said, let's wait, you know, let us talk to third countries. We don't want people necessarily coming to the United States if we can get other countries to agree to take them. And they kind of slow rolled it. 
And you ask what could have been done differently. Um, if the State Department and the White House had approved some of the Pentagon plans to evacuate people earlier, I don't think we would be in this condition. Because imagine, I mean, in, in the past 10 days, the U.S. has evacuated 70,000. That'll be going up significantly more. But imagine if that had been done over the course of two months. You know, it would have been far more orderly. It wouldn't have required, you know, 6,000 troops to be in Afghanistan right now. And and, and so to your basic question, um, they could have done the exact same thing just over the course of a longer period of time if they had planned a bit better. Thank you so much for your insight, Idris Ali. Thank you for joining the program. Foreign policy correspondent covering the Pentagon for Reuters. Check out all his work at Reuters.com. Follow him on social media. You've been doing a fantastic job. Uh, continued success. Thank you for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Like I mentioned, that was Idris Ali, a foreign policy correspondent covering the Pentagon for Reuters. I mentioned it in the first, first episode. One of the news sources that I love is Reuters. And when we were talking about news judgment, and I said, you want to stay away from the Foxes, CNNs, MSNBCs. What did I recommend, Nick? I recommended Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, Reuters, NPR. You really Those want a scoreboard scores. right there. That's right. That is the scoreboard. That's from episode the first, one, Nikki. That's from the first episode. Right, right. <laughs> uh, one person with a mic, the other person with no mic. Um, and we've come a long way, obviously, but getting foreign policy correspondence on the program um, and, and any correspondence from across the media sector, we've been, we've been having a bunch of great guests. He was great as well because, you know, there's a lot there. What's happening in the region, understanding the Taliban versus Al Qaeda why we were there in the first place, what could have been done differently, the messaging from the Biden administration, you know, the plans of was this hastily done? He just mentioned they could have rolled this out over several months to bring people back home. But that speaks more to the bureaucracy. When Olivia Troy came on the program talking about some government bureaucracy, right? We had Ryan Riley talking about the FBI bureaucracy with all these cases that they're having right now, right? And, and the different field offices that are involved. It's a lot of government bureaucracy that goes through this and getting these folks home, specifically ones with SIVs and the different passports. It was a tough process. So now you snowball all of that. And this is what you get when, you know, a country when the um, opposing forces take over in under, you know, three weeks and you really weren't prepared for it. Um, Nick, your takeaways from from the interview with Idris. I mean, it's it's disappointing. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I said this last week and you know, kind of not so playfully, but like, does this feel like our generation's Vietnam? And, you know, and I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week, the, um, or last episode, rather the best and the brightest by David Halberstam is it's like a, a definitive book that sort of explains the failure of the Kennedy administration and the Vietnam war Kennedy and going to Johnson. Um, and that's what this played out as, you know, when Idris is mentioning that the military is saying, let's wait, let's wait longer. You know, if we just put a little more effort or a little more time, we heard this same shit 50 years ago. 50 was it almost yeah almost 50 years ago now and it's the same thing like the white house has a vision that seems blurry because the military or at least people who are really not necessarily active are also giving an unfairly optimistic view but if you were to ask anyone on the ground they would tell you we don't know what we're doing here you know idris brought up a really important point you know the average time of deployment for someone was only a matter of months in order to understand the community that you serve. And let me bring that back to an, an episode that we did, you and I, with an officer. You know, and, um, yeah, it was one of it was one of my very early episodes, just talking about policing 
And he had said the same thing about the, the value of understanding your community. That same exact sentiment was just said in, in this episode. You know, we're, we're revisiting this idea that as an occupying force, you know, we put down, you know, we establish a presence. We're not understanding the community. And the result of it is that the, literally the, the authority we were trying to fight and try to keep out of, you know, coming back into power does in a matter of days, it just sounds like a colossal failure. And I say all that with the flip side being um, the question of, was it worth it that we asked the fact that there are people there? I mean, Mike, you heard Idris's statistics. I mean, we're talking about a lower mortality rate. We're talking about more women having access to education. When I hear those things to think about women who lived in that country for the past 20 years, you know, someone who, you know, a girl and just being able to grow up into being a woman, knowing that their life was better then I would have to say, hell yes, it was worth it. But this just feels like a catastrophic failure by the government to, you know, not establish a system that's going to allow a sustainable government to continue. That's not what happened here. But Idris has been doing the reporting and just points out the fact that there, there's a there's two sides of this coin, you know. So, um, yeah. you know, it wanted to- disappointing, but also somewhat, but just sad, man. Like I just feel for the women out there. Well, you know, one of the things that I read recently in an article. Um, and it, it was it was on Al Jazeera. And it's really about the different administrations over the last 20 years, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And and all four, like we mentioned in, in the previous episode and I think earlier today, all four kind of kicking the can right uh, on this, you know, and different strategies. Right. Obama, you know, everyone talks about. The, the troops that they sent back, um, you know, I believe it was back in 2009 when he had that press conference, I believe it was that army at the time talking about, hey, I got to send, I got to deploy you back to the region, right? Um, I, I thought one of the things that Drew said there was, is like the military always knew that they weren't going to win this. So they, the overarching theme was we shouldn't have gone there to be a nation builder, like just starting at that base level, like we shouldn't have done that. Um, and I think one of the things that I that I love about this show, if I may be biased for a second, um, it, 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 literacy, learning about this, this is not necessarily a political issue. Two administrations, a Republican one and a Democratic one, both said the same thing. Don't no more new wars. Let's get out of there. Right now, everyone's blaming the other one. Right. And we're seeing nothing of that because at the end of the day, it's humanitarian now. We've got people over there that are American citizens. We've got people over there that have helped us for the past 20 years, right? Translators, other people that had government clearance, like he just mentioned. And we're, and we're leaving them. I don't want to use Peter Ducey's words from Fox News who asked Chen Saki this about stranded, because it's not really stranded, but it's like these people need to understand that there's a place here for them. But we got so much red tape and bureaucracy, like Idris mentioned, uh, in terms of getting these folks, you know, passports, visas to come here. Um it is sad when you think about it from that level and you take the politics out of it. And I know I know a couple of people called us a liberal propaganda machine. I don't, I don't know how you can after this episode. But if you think about it from the humanitarian point of this, what happened in Afghanistan over the last 20 years has been a failure from four different administrations, two Republican, two Democrats. So clearly no team is winning there. That's called a tie. Right. In soccer. And so now what, what's happening is. How do we get some of these people home that are Americans? How do we help the other people that stood by us for 20 years? Um, the situation will continue to unfold. 
in that region. What happens next with the Taliban? You know, we asked him about that. You know, their their treatment of women has been something that that has been horrific to to listen to and watch some of these stories. Um, some of the the brave female journalists there in Afghanistan that have been covering this, you know, um, how they treat them post this. He mentioned it, you know, with the withdrawal tomorrow uh, of, of the U.S. troops, at least the deadline being August 31st. Like what what comes of that now? Right. Because now what does the Taliban want from there? They He mentioned it. They want to be legitimate. OK, the only people that have signed off for them are China, Russia, Iran, and Qatar. So not not <laughs> 0 for 4 right now. That's Tony Soprano, Walter White. Uh, who else did I mention? On, oh, Tony, um, uh, Tony Montana. Like, you know, you, you're, you're batting 0 for 4 there if those are the four countries vouching for you. So the situation will continue to unfold. We thank Idris for coming on the program. He was great. Check out his work on Reuters.com. Speaking of a .com where you can check out great work, YouTube dot com hit the smash button for subscribing to all of the video content of these interviews you want to be a patreon subscriber get some bonus content from not only this episode but all of our episodes and some of the stuff that our guests have told us when the cameras stop rolling but they don't know we're recording well they kind of know we're recording um audio podcast platforms you know them by now nick is excited to tell you that we are live where are we live now nick as of today iHeartRadio, baby iHeartRadio. That's New it. New member to the CWP fa- CWPT family. Welcome, iHeartRadio. You go to iHeartRadio, type in "Can we please talk?" You should see us right there. Follow the show. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. We're everywhere, folks. Wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, watching. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Grateful for being a part of a show that keeps teaching us all. Uh, I am Nick Zaveri. That was so emotional, man. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. See everybody next time. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.